It was while we were living internationally that Explorer Maps first started, when Chris and his brother Greg decided to join forces and bring the maps to the whole wide world. Each map is a labour of love. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. This evening, the trail has traveled is being recorded at Rabbit Stick. I'm camped right next to two retired Air Force survival instructors, Ray Young and Tom Luchens. Thank you both so much for agreeing to join me on the trail has traveled. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Our pleasure. My first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I really want to learn about the evolution of you both as retired Air Force survival instructors. I grew up in a city, believe it or not, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I was a city boy growing up. Got into the Boy Scouts at a very young age. Actually, I started in the Cub Scouts. So I was in the Scouts since I was like eight or nine years old. And came all the way through that, through Boy Scouts, Explorer Scouts, all through high school and the whole deal. When I joined the Air Force, I was actually going to be a jet engine mechanic. Ended up going around and watching different interviews, presentations from different career fields throughout the Air Force when I saw survival. And so I ended up going out there and basically continued to do the same thing I'd been doing most of my life as far as the outdoor stuff, because I just love the outdoors. And so I continued on with that and ended up teaching it for over 20 years with the Air Force. And it was funny because I retired from the Air Force and then ended up in Arizona and got reinvolved with the scouts down there. Did the same thing again, teaching kids about the outdoors and the survival techniques, et cetera, for 10 years. And then we moved back up to the state of Washington, was kind of vacant for a few years. And then Tom and I found out about these gatherings to go rabbit stick here and uh, between the rivers up there in Washington. And so I'm back out doing it again. <laughs> you know, get out as much as I can. I've been an avid hunter most of all my adult life, anyhow. Growing up in the city, it wasn't part of it, but I got into that after uh, I got into survival and started roaming around the Washington woods and enjoyed it that way. So being out in the outdoors adventure that way has been a part of my life since I've been a child. And I've always enjoyed it, and I want to continue doing it as long as I can. Well, it's a very similar story. I... (laughs) It's very similar. As a matter of fact, we both got in Boy Scouts. My dad was a big Boy Scout. Oh my gosh, he went to the first Jamboree in 1937 and 
of course, then he got in World War II and on and on. And anyway, I, I was born in 47 after the war. So when I was old enough, I think I don't remember the first, I think I'm trying to remember the first time I had a pack on my back. It was so funny because it was my great uncle's, he was in World War I, Uncle Frank's haversack. And uh, I remember I went to scout camp and I wanted to have this pack on my back. So dad let me have this little pack on my, he didn't have any much in it, maybe five pounds or something, you know. And uh, as they were setting up camp at scout camp for the troop, I was running around this little twerp, you know, running around and had his backpack on. And finally, they said, you got to go home, boy. You're not old enough. <laughs> well, then when I was eight years old, like he said, I joined the Cub Scouts and went all through that we blow stuff and then got into a troop that, you know, started that scout camp when I was we 11 years old or something. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it eight years old for Cubs and 11 years old for... Yep. And so I went to camp as long as I can remember. I know what the joke was with my folks. When I was 13, I started working at camp. And I, my first job was a dishwasher. And that was cool because I got to go to work at 4 in the morning and help the cook. And she told me, you can have all the ice cream and all the milk you want, honey. Just keep your job tight. I said, yes, ma'am. So I got off after washing everything out at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I think my folks sent me, when I was eight years old, I learned how to swim. And by the time I was 13, I was swimming a mile a day down at the pool. So I'd go down after lunch and swim a mile a day, and then I'd go to the rifle range. And in those days, we got paid $3.25 a week plus room and board. This was probably 59 or something like that. Anyway, I'd go to the rifle range and I'd shoot all afternoon after I was done swimming on the 22 range. We had a good time. So I worked there, and finally they asked me, well, do you want to work down on the waterfront? And it's like, well, everybody wants to work on the waterfront because that's the coolest place around, you know. So anyway, we had nine weeks of camp that year, and like halfway through they said, well, we got a new guy coming to the waterfront, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder who that lucky dude is. And they said, it's you. And I said, oh, <laughs> okay. I taught swimming started teaching swimming when I was 13. And we taught other things. We taught nature and stars and all the scout stuff, you know, knots and ropes and blah, blah, blah. So all those summers, I would go to summer camp and I would teach basically waterfront. I taught all the swimming, canoeing, rowing, life-saving, all that stuff. And then I heard about this thing called the Canadian Canoe Trails. I said, whoa. And then in Amarillo, Texas, I mean, that's like a big deal because our little creek was about 10 feet wide and five inches deep, you know. And there was bullfrogs in there you could gig. But anyway, I don't know how it happened, but I got a hold of the chief guide who lived in Amarillo. His name was Tom Clack. And he asked me a bunch of questions. He says, well, come on up and we'll you'll let you swamp. Be a guide in training that they called it swampers in those days. And so I went up to Ely to the Charles L. Summers Wilderness Canoe Base. I had a bus ride all the way from Amarillo to Ely. I got in there the first night. That was so funny. And funny now. It hurt then. Got off the bus, got in a truck, and they took us to the end of the road, into the end of the road, walk in the guide lounge area, and this guy slaps a axe handle in my there, and he gets some firewood, Swampy. Okay. So... <laughs> So I put down my bag and my fishing rod and canoe paddle and 
And so I said, where's the fire? Out there under the porch. So I went out there and I make a long story short, I proceeded to pl plant the ax in my medial malaise on my right foot through a brand new pair of red wing boots. <laughs> I'd never seen a Hudson Bay ax. It was small and little and I said, whoa. Anyway, so 15 minutes later, they were taking me back to town for stitches. <laughs> I really impressed them on that day. We worked in the swamps for months. But then I had three years of guiding canoe trips up there. And during that time, of course, Vietnam was going on. And while I was going to school, I was not majoring in studying. I was majoring in uh, other curricular activities. <laughs> and... Uh, not a whole lot of drinking going on, but anyway, out in the woods. Generally, I was out in the woods farting around and not studying. So when my average came back pretty low, I decided, well, I guess I better join up before I get drafted. And Sandy Bridges was the guy that was the director at Canoe Base up there at the time, assistant director. And he was in the Army, and he taught survival in the Army Guard. Yeah, the Army National Guard. And my dad happened to be working at Randolph, which was the headquarters of Air Force training. And he found out that I was interested in this and said, well, let me see what's going on. So he looked around the headquarters building and found the guy in charge of that. And they said, well, if you want to come in the survival school, be in here in this date to this date, and you can get screened. How many people do they usually screen for us? Depends on what class size they're looking for, but generally about 60 to 150, anywhere in that range. And I don't know if they were blowing smoke up our backsides or not, but it seems like they told us that they screened a couple of thousand people to get 58. I don't know. Maybe that was the first guys that walked in the door and left. I don't know. But anyway, so I was lucky I got picked. I remember the first question he asked me, and I had no idea. He says, what's a muckluck? And I'm thinking, I haven't got a clue. I said, I haven't got a clue. And he says, well, you'll figure it out later. <laughs> so... Muckluck, it's a skin generally made of caribou hide legs. The front sewn on the front and the back sewn on the back, and you fill it full of, of insulation like reindeer hide or something like that. It's really warm. But we have, of course, the military issue made of canvas and so on. And, and we actually made a set of them from scratch, from pieces and scraps of parachute material. And I remember I made mine, and they had a lot of foam rubber, and I put that around my foot and my toes and everything. Anyway, so I started teaching in 69. We went through training for six months, and OGT for six months, and, and I taught at Fairchild and then Philippines and Alaska, and then, anyways, all over the world. Retired in 88, thought I was gonna be a professional Boy Scout. That didn't work out too good. Anyway, I came back and then I finished my degree, and then I started teaching US Customs Service survival all over the United States. Then my buddy Rich Lawn says, if you don't take this job over there at the survival school, I'm gonna kick your backside. And so, thanks Rich, I got the job at the survival school in 2001 as a contractor and kept teaching survival in the field and then the academics when they said you're too decrepit to go to the field. <laughs> and uh, so um, then I uh, got laid off a couple years ago. This primitive gathering skills, this is something for us to do, you know. We don't get to do it anymore, professionally. So now we get to come out and have some fun. I don't know about adventure, but it's just been a way of life. Well, like I said, it gets us a chance to pass things along, you know, being, being teachers most of our lives, that's what we're doing, is trying to give knowledge and skills to people that don't have them. 
these encampments are an opportunity to do that again, to pass the skills and knowledge on to everybody or to whoever's interested. Last year was a kind of a cool year when David Westcott, at the first meeting, he says, this is, we want to start passing the torch, you know, because, and it's kind of like at, at Global Bushcraft Symposium in 19, that was the whole purpose of it, was to pass the torch from the old guys to the new guys. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Ray Young and Tom Luchens. They are retired Air Force survival instructors. And Tom was just talking about Rabbit Stick and how this is an opportunity for them to continue to seek and share skills. So someone listening who has no idea what Rabbit Stick is, you've got one minute each to explain what it means to you. <laughs> Ready? Go. Well, Rabbit Stick is a primitive skills encampment where people can come and learn skills that their ancestors had that technology has really taken away from them because they don't need them anymore because of the technology they've got nowadays and it's people that want to learn those skills again and it's our chances some people that have learned these skills when we were kids and grown up using them to pass them along to these people that want to learn those skills now well i agree with everything he just said but i <laughs> i would add to that it's also an opportunity like today and then this last time we came here, it's an opportunity for us that have been in, in a military rut of survival, so to speak. Because this is, we had a completely niche training war fighters to stay alive and come home is a little bit different than primitive skills. Like we're learning how to make stone tools, how to cut trees down with stone tools, how to get the old guys that are here, I mean, Somebody, people say we're old, but I don't think so. It's just a number. We're learning the skills that we missed out on as we were doing the technical stuff. And it's a lot of fun because, I mean, it's a challenge, you know. And plus, we're meeting all kinds of new people, like yourself and, and all kinds of people. It's like a big community that is doing the same thing. And big thing is share information, experiment, get experience, and educate. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and we are currently recording at Rabbit Stick. It's the 35th anniversary of Rabbit Stick, which is a traditional skills gathering here in Rexburg, Idaho, on the Henry's Fork of the Snake River. It's now time for a song. Can one of you please sing a song? No, just kidding. <laughs> Share a song that reminds you of your early explorations outside. Well, there's one song. I'll try to sing it a little bit, but I'm not going to be very good. And it's a song that we used to sing up in northern Minnesota. It's called The Far Northland. It's the far northland that's a-calling me away As take I with my pack sack to the road It's the far northland that's a-calling me away As I something 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 with the sunlight for my load but i can't remember the rest of the words but it's called the far northland and anybody that's out there that's listening has ever been a charlie's guide or ever been northern tier they're going to know how to sing it it's the far northland that's a calling me away as i take i with my back to the road to the road it's the call on me of the forest in the north as i step by with the sunshine for my load from Lake Agnes by Louisa to Canippi I will go Where you see the loon and hear his plaintive wail If you're thinking in your inner heart There's a swagger in my step Then you've never been along the border trail 
It's a flash of battle blades gleaming in the sun. A canoe softly skimming by the shore. By the shore. It's the tang of pine and bracken coming on the breeze that calls me to the waterways once more. From Lake Agnes by Louisa to Canippee I will go Where you see the moon and hear its plaintive wail If you're thinking in your inner heart to swagger in my step Then you've never been along the border trail The Border Trail For someone listening who's wondering about retired Air Force survival instruction why that might have been something that was more commonly taught a while back. I heard the other day when you guys were talking that it's not as common now. The Air Force Survival School, I mean, was put together to teach the uh, air crews, to give our air crews an opportunity to survive if they ever had to leave their airplane. I mean, they're out there, they're fighting, they're flying. And if uh, either through aircraft emergency or wartime, you know how to uh, leave that airplane and they're down on the ground, whether in a, uh, a safe environment or behind enemy lines, we taught them the skills they would need to go ahead and use the equipment that they've got on them to be able to survive the experience and hopefully get back to friendly territory if it is during wartime and you know bad territory you know all the basics you're going to find in survival how to build shelters build fires find water look for snare food you know whatever they would need to live off the land depending where they're in and we taught it in a manner of when they're actually being taught the skills and, you know, we were based out of the state of Washington, so we're back in the trees and back there, you know, depending on the time of year, whether it's summertime like this where it's kind of clear and hot or whether you were in December, January, February when you're three, four, five, six feet of snow, you're dealing with that. That's what they actually physically experience at the time. But we're always talking and trying to show them different things that they will possibly use in a global environment. You know, what happens if they go down to the desert? What happens if they go down to the jungle or the tropics? You know, because the environment's different. So the techniques and the skills, a lot of the same, even though the environment's different and the materials will be different. But the techniques are still there and how they need to look at those things. And so that's what we ended up doing all over the world. We had our basic school there, like I said, at Fairchild Air Force. Well, it started at Stead Air Force Base in Nevada back in the late 50s and early 60s. Moved up to Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State in 1966 and is there to this day. But we have had schools over in the Philippines. We had one in Panama. We did a desert operation down at Nellis Air Force Base water down at Homestead Air Force Base when it was there, and then they moved it up to um, Tyndall in later years after the big hurricane down there that took out Miami and a lot of southern Florida back in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that, when Homestead got wiped out, or a lot of it did. So we are, and they're based in the career field over the years has increased in numbers. So it's, uh, you know, back when we were in, there was, what, maybe 250, 300 people yeah. within the career field. Now there's probably twice that many, and they're trying to build it even more because they're being deployed more and more throughout the entire world at all the bases and every place that the Air Force is working, not just the Air Force, too. They're trying to condense things even more into multi-service, you know, so you're not just working with one service necessarily. But the basics behind it all is to be able to teach the air crews how to live, how to survive. So if uh, they ever have to leave that nice, comfy airplane, they can get back home. So that's the whole background of the thing. 
Can we dive in? Because I feel like even if we had started talking about this from the beginning, we'd only be scratching the surface in terms of the information that you shared with your students. So I'd love to learn about survival in, say, the Arctic versus the tropics versus open water versus the desert. Well, when you discuss the whole principle of survival, you got to get down to the basics. There's three numbers, 98.6, and that's what you have to maintain. Whether you're in the Arctic, I remember being in the Arctic on the 29th of July, my birthday, and it was 104 above, and I suffered from heat exhaustion. Six months earlier, it was minus 78 below zero Fahrenheit with no wind and we had students in the field. So all environments can be totally drastically different in a very short period of time. Of course, that was back in the 70s. The thing that I would say is that you have to look at whatever environment you're in and just remember, okay, I have to first of all take care of my body. We always said that 80% of the people that found themselves in a survival situation we're going to be injured. 100% of them are going to be in shock, psychogenic shock. They're going to go, oh, shoot, or worse. <laughs> when an individual realizes, uh-oh, life is a lot different now. Things happened, boom. If you've been in a wreck or any type of a traumatic emergency, things are immediately changed. But you've got to focus on the idea of, I'm gonna get out of this mess, but how do I do it? I remember I had a student in Alaska one time. He was a civilian pilot, and he was flying from Fairbanks to Nome. It was bad weather. And those days we were teaching maintained body heat as the key words for people to remember. And he had his hands on the yoke of the airplane. We're going through this, there was four people in the back of the airplane, and he was flying and he was in a whiteout condition, and he crashed. And he was still holding onto the yoke, which I don't understand, it didn't break his arms or hands, but anyway, it didn't. He said, I was just holding onto the yoke and I was saying, maintain body heat, maintain body heat, maintain body heat. And he said, I kept chanting that to myself and I realized, you dummy, the windscreen is broken and it's snowing in here. He says, Pfft. so he says, the first thing I did was I plugged the hole with something. And then I looked around to check my people. Two of them were dead and the other two were hurt. Well, he said, I knew I was gonna make it because I knew that I had taken charge of the environment. I had done something positive to stop the wind from blowing the snow in there. And he says, then I went and took care of the guys that were, I figured out who was alive, who was dead. He took care of me, he says, I knew I was gonna make it. All of those different environments, whether they're the Arctic or the ocean or whatever, you know, when we were teaching people in the ocean, it's a whole different ball game out there. I mean, it's literally the water desert. You can't drink that stuff. If you do, you go crazy and die. You know, the desert is a place that you, you don't fear it, but you respect it because there's a whole lot of things that you have to do. Like, all the things are the same. Insulation is insulation is insulation. Dead air. It's going to stop heat from transferring to one for the other. So in the Arctic, we use snow. 15 inches of snow is R60, and that's our insulation for our shelter. In the desert, 18 inches between 
the two layers of the shade shelter is insulation. You have to remember that you have to insulate against the extreme temperatures. So that's just the start of it. Then you have maintained your ability, you think, that's your best tool right there's your brain. If you've done something positive and you start remembering, then your training kicks in. And you just start doing it by rote. And sometimes you, the little book that you have, oh yeah, I remember, oh yeah, I gotta do that. Oh yeah, I gotta do that. So they have a little, little book that they have in their kit. Sometimes that's something that helps jog the memory. In England, they have the original Dunker. It's in uh, Yeovilton. And it was quite funny because we used to show a film of this gentleman that invented it. I forget his name, but he said, yeah, we'd like to get them to feel the cold and the water up their nose and the little panic. That's what we want them to feel while they're going into the training. Well, that dunker took them down to 30 feet deep. And I got to write it, and it was so funny because I was the last one in there, and I saw this guy's face. He turned around, and the water's coming up, and he's grinning real big, and he says, can you hold your breath, mate? And I went, yeah. As he got out, I got out and I just grabbed his foot. He pulled me straight out. <laughs> but you gotta have points of reference in getting out of an airplane and doing everything, you know? Like, you gotta have a point of reference and you gotta have a goal. The idea is that each environment has different characteristics, but you have the same goal in all the environments. If you don't have any water in the desert, you better be not moving in the daytime and you better be in the shade if you can find some. You know, on the other hand, just before sunrise in the desert, you might be shaking like a dog in peach pits, you know. I remember one time we were in the desert and we were hugging these rocks because they were warm and it was cold. And then 10 minutes later, the sun came up and we were cooking. <laughs> the extremes in all the environments, I mean, jungles have extremes too, but it's just like sometimes you're walking around in calf deep mud that you can barely pull your feet out of, and six months later in a dry season, it's that deep of moon dust just, just everywhere. I mean, you've been all over the world, so you know what I'm talking about, but it's the kind of thing where you just have to focus on what you need to keep yourself alive. And remember that it's really simple. We have these rules of what's gonna kill you first? Help me out here. Well, the first thing you need is water. I mean, if you think about it that way, I mean, you said you're 98.6, yes. You've got to maintain your body. Yeah, One of yeah. the first things your body's going to need is water. Two days. Three days. Three two days to three days without water. Without water that's about it. Yeah. So that's going to be a priority. Yeah. Depending on your environment, if you come down and it's snowing like a banshee and you're in the Arctic, water's not going to be as big of a problem because you've got all that snow and ice out there if you can melt it. What's going to be there is going to be shelter, possibly at that point in time. So it really depends a lot on the environment and what you can utilize. If you can get into an environment where you can get down to uh, bare earth, the earth is always at plus yeah. 18 degrees. Yeah. So if you're in a real cold environment and you can get through whatever coverings there, snow or ice or whatever, and get down to the bare earth, it's going to be at least maintained at 18 degrees. Same thing with a desert environment. I mean, that's going to be 18 degrees. You may have to get down a little bit below the surface, but you're going to be able to maintain that. That's, that's going to help you maintain that 98.6, which is your body temperature, which is what he's saying you're trying to maintain through whatever survival skill you need. Gathering water, food, energy conservation, 
whatever you're doing, you got to do the cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. Energy expended versus outcome gained. If it balances negative, you're dying. If right. it balances positive, you're making it. And it's very simple. I mean, you can figure it out real easy. Is this helping me or is this hurting me? If it's hurting you, don't do it. It's really a simple thing. That's why I say also the psychological factor is probably one of the biggest things is uh, having a positive attitude or having the ability to tell yourself that you can do this. You are going to make it. It may seem bleak and it may seem insurmountable. You know, if you're smart enough to sit there and balance that out, you know, like you said, am I going to get a positive or negative out of what I'm doing here? You know, am I going to do it? And that's the whole thing that survival schools do. I'm going to go back to Vietnam. We had lots of students in Vietnam. And one that sticks in my brain, I just happened to meet him one time after his experience, but there's a gentleman named Captain Roger Locker. And... He was shot down 40 miles west of Hanoi. He spent 19 days on the ground, and he was literally touched by the enemy, but he wasn't caught. When he came back and did his debrief, by the way, they sent the largest package of aircraft north in history. They spent 250 airplanes up there to get him out because he was only about four miles east of a MiG base. (laughs) Anyway, Roger Locker said, you know... When I hit the ground in North Vietnam, he says, I wasn't scared of the jungle because it looked like, it smelled like, and it felt like, and it sounded like the Philippines. And I had been there, and I had done the whole business of survival, and I wasn't worried. I knew I could make it. He says, the only thing I had to do was stay away from the enemy and get rescued. And he did. And so when you take students... And you can give them that kind of positive attitude. The whole thing is positive attitude. The sad part about his situation was his front seat eroded in because he was scared of the jungle. One time, a fellow named Dick Dunphy, he was one of uh, the people that was left on Bataan during World War II. And he and about 1,000 or 2,000 guys swam to Corregidor on anything that floated. Corregidor was a burned-out hulk. I'll make the story short. He was captured by the Japanese. He rode a hell boat to Japan. He was four years prisoner in Hiroshima. He came out the day the bomb was dropped into a submarine. But when he found out that I was going to the Philippines, I worked with him and the scouts and the troop in Spokane, and he found out I was going to the Philippines. He says, you better teach those guys damn good to not be afraid of the jungle. Because the reason that we were captured was because we were scared of the jungle. He says, if we had knowledge of the jungle and we weren't scared of the jungle, we would have gone in there and we would have joined the resistance, the Filipino resistance. But he says, that's the whole reason we were captured, because we were scared of the jungle. So they got to have positive thoughts about the world. Otherwise, they're just going to give up. And, And some of our POWs had give up itis. Some of the guys didn't make it. It was while we were living internationally, about 11 years ago, that Explorer Maps first started. When Chris and his brother Greg decided to join forces and bring the maps to the whole wide world. Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. Each map is a labour of love 
and I am lucky enough to see them all grow step by step from the early research and planning stages onto a large white piece of paper through penciling, inking and finally seeing the real magic happen as Chris adds the colour. As each one reaches the end phase, I get to examine them closely in the hope that I spot any unfinished bits before Chris sends them off. But there's always new illustrations to see every time. I love going to the Missoula warehouse when we're in Montana to see each unique map on the incredible range of products that Explorer Maps now has. Having lived away from home and families for the past 17 years, our aim of connecting people and place is very poignant to me. And for that reason, my favorite maps are Flathead and the Maasai Mara, because these two places are central to our extended family gatherings and where we have made the best of memories. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit exploramaps.com. I was hoping that we could go back and forth a little bit and talk about the basics. You've mentioned the basics a few times, but for someone listening who really does want to grasp the concept of the basic survival skills, let's go over those. Maintaining your 98.6, you know, that is your normal body temperature. So your whole goal of survival is to maintain your body. What do you need to do that? Well, that depends, again, on the environment. Water may be a priority. You can only go two to three days without it. So that might be a priority depending on what environment you're in. Are you in the desert where there's hardly any water? Are you in an Arctic environment where you need to procure it through melting ice or snow? Are you in the jungle where you're going to get washed away and you got too much water? Yeah. Is the weather crapping on you so much that you need shelter right away? Are you injured? Do you need to stop yourself from bleeding possibly right away so you, you can know, keep your body alive? You remember that's why they, when we packed the parachute, we had the tourniquet with a loop in it. And it had a 10-pound brake cord so that they could actually put a tourniquet on in this parachute and right. on their leg. So it could be done quickly. You can bleed out before you hit the ground. It really all depends on the environment. Uh, what is going to be your priority at that point in time? Whether it's going to be uh, water, shelter, medical. It's got so many variables. So I know in all our instruction, we used to teach all those different skills. And the environment's going to dictate on what skills you use first to maintain that 98.6 that you talk about. It's a very important thing that we always taught. Train like you fight and fight like you train. Because if you try to change it in the middle of the stuff hitting the fan, it ain't going to work. And to quote Jim McGovern at our last reunion, bless his heart, he says, the things I learned in survival, suck it up, don't bitch, and get her done. And I think that's what we all did. Like you said, the encampment we're at right now and all the teaching we've done over the years, the whole idea is to instruct people and pass skills along that they can utilize because if something ever happens and they find themselves in a situation where they've got to rely on just themselves and their own knowledge to be able to survive and keep on going, it's those skills they have and that knowledge they have that are going to enable them to keep on going because without that, most people are just going to crawl up and give up. you got to have skills. you got to have experience. And experience is living through things that you've messed up 
and learned from. And you've got to have practice. Like, who was it that said perfect practice makes perfect? Uh, the coach of the Green Bay Packers? Anyway, you've got to have all that stuff. Then you can have positive mental attitude. And the attitude is what's going to take you through. You can go through anything. I don't care what it is. Crashed an airplane in the water. You're trapped underneath the wreckage of the airplane. You know that you don't have any air. Oh, but I got this little Heeds bottle. I stick that in my mouth and <sighs> now I know I've got 30 seconds while the airplane is sinking. So I'm getting out of there the best I can. Do I have to rip my legs off? Well, maybe. But anyway, they got the positive attitude to do that. Once you get that air under a bad situation like that, once you've got that landmark and you can get out of there, once you put that tourniquet on, stop, think, observe, and plan. That's one of those things that we've always taught them, too. Because if you just are going to run and go and run and go, you've got to panic-proof yourself. All of it comes together. The knowledge is the biggest thing. Knowledge and, and knowing those skills, or at least having a basics of them to help create that positive mental attitude that you're going to go ahead and that you can survive it and you can get through no matter what the situation throws at you. I mean, you talk about coming out of an airplane or just being stuck or maybe something hits the fan here and you've got you've to crawl into the woods just to survive or a car accident in the middle of nowhere. These different things can help you survive. And that's what we're there for. Thank you both so much for your time and energy joining me this evening on The Trail Less Traveled. You're welcome. Well, thank you for having us. Really glad to be camped next to you here at Rabbit Stick, 35th anniversary of this beautiful traditional skills gathering. You'll have to send us all kind of your new of your new adventures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, heading to Zambia next to interview rangers and ex-poachers in the field. Oh, cool. It's now time for a Be song. Be careful. I will. I will. <laughs> it's time for a song. Can you please share a song with us that reminds you of survival, reminds you of your adventures? When my grandson was born, I was in Thailand. My daughter was in labor in Seattle, Rachel. And when Joshua was born, I was able to talk to her on a sat phone from the middle of Thailand, jungle. And the song that they remembered, because it was on the TV of Raymond Mears' Thailand show, it was in a pouring rainstorm, and I had harmonica, and I played You Are My Sunshine for my grandson. So it was kind of a funny thing, but anyway.
Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The radio version of the show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. You'll notice that the podcast version of the show doesn't include the music, unless it's copyright free. That's why I encourage you to listen live when the show premieres on the radio in order to get the full experience. That said, I am grateful for your support, whether you listen to the radio or podcast version of The Trail Less Traveled. This has been episode 579, and I would like to extend my gratitude to Ray Young and Tom Luchens. Ray and Tom are retired Air Force survival instructors, and I was able to sit down with them during the 35th anniversary of Rabbit Stick, a traditional skills gathering that takes place every September on the Henry's Fork of the Snake River outside of Rexburg, Idaho. It has been my dream to focus my energy on storytelling and outreach in schools. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do this via the financial support provided by a like-minded small family business based in Missoula, Montana with roots in Africa. That business is Explorer Maps. We are dedicated to connecting people and place through art history, culture, conservation, and storytelling. As members of 1% for the Planet, Explore Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. All of these organizations have similar missions focused on conservation, preservation, and education of our public lands. To date, Explore Maps has donated over $150,000 to conservation efforts worldwide. Whether it's the holidays or not, I encourage you to support local businesses. What's more, give the gift that gives back. The Explore Maps store is located on the corner of 3rd and Inez in Missoula, and you can learn more by visiting exploremaps.com. I would also like to thank another sponsor, Float Missoula. I find these floats to be extra rewarding during the darker winter months. Often I'll end the trail less traveled by sharing some adventure tips. Instead of that, I figured I would take this opportunity to answer a question from one of my young listeners, who was also a friend of mine. His name is Dean, and when we celebrated the premiere of episode 500 a few years ago, I presented an opportunity for listeners around the world to submit questions they may have for me. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to my friend Dean so he can ask his question, and then I will do my best to answer it. My name's Dean. I'm from Missoula. Mandela's my friend. I'm four and a half. Mandela, why do you like to go around the world so much? And why do you kayak, Mandela? First of all, I want to say thank you to my friend Dean 
for going out of his way to submit this question. It's a very good question, Dean. And as you know, I've been traveling my entire life since I was two months old. My mother is a retired international flight attendant with United Airlines. And so traveling has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. That said, the reason that I travel around the world so much is because I find different cultures, different perspectives, and diverse communities to be incredibly inspirational. And because I know they have inspired me so much, I'm dedicated to collecting these stories and sounds from around the world with the hope that those who are listening will also be inspired. I believe that much of the discord on our planet is due to misunderstanding. So by sitting down with people from various backgrounds and asking them to share their story, I feel like it helps make the world a smaller place by helping those who listen realize that there is profound beauty in diversity. And although we are incredibly diverse as homo sapiens, the more I travel and the more I immerse myself in different cultures, I find that we actually have a lot in common. The second part of your question is really fun. Why do I kayak? I honestly feel that whitewater kayaking is one of the most profound ways to experience nature and in particular, moving water. The feeling of pushing offshore, dipping my paddle into the river and going with the flow is profound and I'm actually at a loss of words. If you're listening and you're interested in learning how to kayak, I encourage you to look at the resources provided by Love Boat Paddle Company, Zootown Surfers, and the University of Montana's outdoor program. My next kayaking adventure will be paddling through the Grand Canyon for 25 days in February of 2024. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember... Conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed, get engaged, and speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places.